the church is God's organization. So obviously something innovative, truly innovative in the church, more valuable. But there's so much to do in the world that Catholics have done for centuries. You know, they've driven innovation, whether it's discovery of knowledge or whatever else. And we've, we've seeded that ground. Can we cultivate a vocation to innovation within the church and in the marketplace? How does God use the secular world and our role in it to advance the gospel? In this week's episode, tech entrepreneur and innovator Kailash Duraiswamy shares how asking the right questions led him to find Christ in the midst of the everyday. Really, it boils down to I did not know what truth is. I could not know because I didn't understand Christianity, which is when we realize what it is, it is the it explains the most fundamental aspects of humanity and the most fundamental aspects of the universe. I didn't know any of it. And so I would come to it really having to learn the most basic parts of reality. God has called us to be salt and light in the world. We can do this by serving him and others through innovation that brings people together and closer to the truth. This is Living the Call. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank it's you. Good to, it's good to see you. Good to have you here in LA, in studio, in the flesh. Thank you, Deacon. What are you here for? I am here personally on Memorial Day to visit my girlfriend's family. Nice. So just happened to be here. So very grateful that we could do this in person. But you've got like a California story. That's right? right. Yeah, I was born in Florida, but then I found my way to San Francisco, where I had the majority of my career so far, and I lived in Northern California. Yeah, the Bay Area. That's right. And you're like involved in the scene, to the tech scene up there, or were for a long time, right? Doing AI and doing a bunch of stuff? That's right. I was the founder of a technology startup there, and I have many friends who are founders and engineers and people who work in those companies, big and small. Yeah. So I wanted to, you know, talk to you about a bunch of stuff here. Um, and this one's going to be just, you know, full disclosure for folks who are listeners to this show. We normally have a segment at the end called Wait What, which is these kind of crazy questions that I throw out there. I don't have any crazy questions for you today. Okay? So you're, you're going to have to like, you know, take a, take a breath of relief because I didn't actually have time to put them together. So we're just going to have a conversation. Well, I'll try to do some crazy answers along the way. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> I may ask you a couple crazy questions, but I'm, I'm super fascinated. There's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, but, but um, I'm super fascinated by um, the general kind of landscape or dynamic that caused for our meeting one another, which I know we were introduced before, but you and I just got back from Houston where we were attending a conference that really looked to kind of, I think as we said it on that final day, right? People that are serious about their faith, serious about their business, who are builders, right? And just the idea that something like that exists is really exciting to me because it's sort of nestled within this broader context of the power of enterprise within a kind of Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely want to talk about that and kind of your leading into that. And I also want to cover off of like how you found yourself in that, in that world, but maybe let's start with the entrepreneurship piece. And you wrote this, uh, what would you call labor of love? I would call that, uh, a treatise or a paper. Dude, yeah. it, it reads like an encyclical, though. I mean, it reads like an apostolic exhortation. I wouldn't say it's an exhortation because I'm a lay person, but that was the first word that came to my mind. Maybe an exhortation of a business person. Sure. But it's something about the language, right, that you use to, to say this is really well done. Thank but you. But what, like, what was the, the motivation for that? You know, I think one thing I find with people in our faith is that there's almost a justification to be ambitious or to work hard. And I think it's, I just think there's so much out there for us to do. And I think that part of what I wrote in there is that the church in the last few decades has consistently called lay people to engage in the culture and engage in the marketplace to deliver Catholic solutions to marketplace problems and societal problems. Yeah. And I find that it's more convenient for people to say, oh, I don't want to try or, oh, I'm not greedy or whatever and be on the sidelines. And I wanted to write that more than anything to say, if we're motivated by love and we're detached from the fruits of the labor, then we should be very joyful that God calls us to higher levels of responsibility in society and higher levels of work. And one thing 
I think I kind of pointed out, but I reflect on with, with founders is, you know, it's actually much harder to succeed than fail. Yeah. It is far more difficult to find something innovative to do and do the work to get it into consumers' hands, make it work. That's way more difficult than giving up or not trying at all. I can attest to the uh, to that dynamic as a multiple entrepreneur startup founder failure. <laughs> so uh, I'm with you on that. Yeah, actually, it's interesting, right? You actually a, a quote from your piece here: the baseline of profession, the the baseline professional disposition of a founder is love, right? And then you kind of quote St. Paul, which I think is a really cool way to look at that. Why do you think? I mean, to the extent that you've thought about this, this idea of the laity being a central part of the church's mission. I think broadly has been a little bit of a in practice since the Second Vatican Council. And I think at first, maybe people heard that and thought like, I have to be more vocal at mass or more involved or more present or whatever. All of those things are true. But the potential, let's say, to say generously, of the laity taking a principal role in the advancement of the gospel and integration of, of Catholic virtues into everyday life, the promise of that, let's say, has not been fully realized. Would you agree with that to date? Certainly, if you believe that we are in a culture of death, or if you believe that um, belief in Christianity is decreasing over the last few decades, or attendance at Mass is decreasing over the last few decades, which are both statistically proven to be true, Correct. then yes, we would have to agree that um, the purpose or proposal of Vatican II for the laity to engage the culture more strongly as Catholics has not been fulfilled. I actually just gave these stats, I was trying to find them here in the background, about um, a Catholic participation because I gave a talk in Dallas and I actually cited those uh, statistics. I think it's something like in the last 20 years, uh, about a 60% drop-off in mass attendance, about a 50% drop-off in infant baptisms. Matrimony is the one that got whacked the most. It's just mm. way down. And I'm talking about in, in like your lifetime, right? And you're a young guy. Like right. in the last 20 years, it's this is something that's happened. And it's it has a tendency of feeling like we're kind of falling off a cliff. And then when you look out at, well, how do you contravene that decline? And of course, we need more vocations. And of course, we need more, you know, more of everything, right? But, but this idea of leaning into the sources of influence for the world, which, you know, lie in the laity is so crystal clear to me when I think about it. And especially in the area of entrepreneurship and business and like innovation, which is another one. It's like still a dirty word in some sectors in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. What's that about? It's crazy. You know, there's a crisis of vocations in terms of people joining uh, the religious orders or joining the priesthood. But this is kind of a, a an unpopular way to say it, but there is a crisis of vocation in terms of people being innovators as Catholics. There's very, very few people. And we, you know, we met maybe all or most. <laughs> right. They were all there at our, at our conference. Yeah. You know, and it is, it is tragic that people um, don't see how it's so important to work hard and think innovatively and do so as a Catholic mm. and not cede the ground only to the people that I've met in San Francisco who don't share our values and more importantly are not guided by truth. I mean, that's actually very dangerous when they're the only people who are trying to build new things and offer solutions. I was talking about this to my wife just yesterday because um, we work with the homeless, right? And we have to interact a lot with municipal forces like Child Protective Services and, you know, all manner of government tentacles and organs. And she said something at one point. She's like, can you imagine if Apple managed the process for like the DMV or TSA or Google, you know, ran some of this. And like the logical thought is, well, it'd be a lot cleaner and neater and more beautiful and less clunky and all these things that, <clears throat> you know, in, in a kind of innovator mindset, you tend to iterate and perfect and do all this stuff. And then my thought, which I think goes to your point was, in terms of the values and the orientation, even if you got Google and Apple to do it, though, in those cases, their motivation, their means to an end, it would be a means to an end to greater market capitalization, greater dollars, and not necessarily people right. or 
you know, uh, conversion, that kind of thing. So it, it does seem like it's a deep alignment issue around the values that drive innovation in the secular space, but that shouldn't hold us back, right, from a Catholic context to, to approach innovation. That's really what myself and a few others are really going to find out in the next few decades of our career is whether it is possible to maintain our celebration of the dignity of the human person, of balance in our life, keeping the Sabbath holy. We're going to figure out and find out whether it is possible to remain ambitious and successful in the marketplace while not compromising on our morality. That's really the experiment we're going to see. Have you, you're, you're a convert to the faith. Yes. And I definitely want to talk about that experience because I, I don't all, often or always talk to converts, but I, I do want to talk to, to you about that. But in your Catholic part of your life, have you run into, you know, opposition, difficult conversations, question marks, maybe an askance look when you talk about innovation? When you talk about the importance of what innovation could mean? No, I think it's more, perhaps an askance look, but it's more captured that uh, with apathy. I think it is more that people think it is other people will solve the world's problems, other people will do X, Y, or Z, and that it's just not something that falls on their shoulders. Mm. And and I don't, and that can be, look, I'm very blessed that I have the talent and the training to to do innovation at a a large scale of a business. But I think there's a question of whether you are innovative in your career personally, or if you're innovative in your church community, if you're innovative in your family, like there's something about being innovative, even in your workplace at a smaller level that I think I also see people lacking as well an interest in. What do you, th- and, it, and, it, and it is kind of a push pull thing, right? Because there's the need of innovation vis-a-vis the church and what the church does. And then there's the need for innovation within all secular contexts by people leading that innovation with a Catholic worldview, right? right? If you were, if those are the two things, do you, do you hedge it? Do you put a bias on which is more important right now? Yeah, it is certainly you look at people like St. Teresa of Avila, St. Ignatius, um, St. Teresa of Lisieux, they're very innovative people. They're extremely innovative people. They thought about things very differently. They were founders. They created organizations. And they leave a bigger mark on society over the longest period of time than even innovators in the marketplace. However, being innovative in the marketplace, for example, with very important industries like energy or healthcare, they deliver something in the here and now, which is extremely important. Yeah. So I think we always have to defer that the church is God's organization. So obviously something innovative, truly innovative in the church, more valuable. But there's so much to do in the world that Catholics have done for centuries. You know, they've driven innovation, whether it's discovery of knowledge or whatever else. And We've we've seeded that ground. We definitely have. And I think it's super interesting to consider that innovation in the marketplace from a Catholic perspective, when you consider some of the intricacies of the things that we're talking about and dealing with, right? So like, for instance, artificial intelligence. In my experience, the value of the Catholic in the marketplace is both the things that they do that are innovative and also the things that they say no to or stop from happening, right? And when you think about AI, and love your point of view on this, right? because you've got certainly more experience than I do on this subject. But when you think of something like artificial intelligence, its potential, machine learning, um, you know, all this kind of stuff, its potential. But then you think about the people who are, you know, writing the algos, writing the code, building the products. And then it it can lead you to this sense of, well, if this thing's going to go off the rails, it's going to be, at least in part, because the people building this stuff are not guided by something more fundamental. Uh, you know, I, every, everybody's seen the Boston Scientific, I think it was Boston Scientific, the robot thing, or yep. like that, that and, it, and, it, and like, oh, imagine a, a bayonet in this thing's hand, or like, you know, a semi-automatic, you know, rifle and getting into the wrong hands. And it, it leads to this kind of like apocalyptic kind of thinking. But in a way, it's grounded in something that's reasonable, which is like, well, if what's building this brain doesn't coincide with this kind of broader view of the universe or the world like who knows what's possible right yeah so just to give a quick on 
my background on this matter. So I was the founder of a technology startup, which was called Pantenix. And we were a distributed team headquartered in Seattle, but I was the co-founder in San Francisco. And we provided a way for companies on Wall Street to automate manual data entry through computer vision. So computer vision is it's a more articulated form of artificial intelligence. And what we did was provide a platform that these businesses that get a lot of data presented to them on PDFs could use these machines to virtually read the PDFs and then extract and harvest the data and make it meaningful to them without a human being having to look at any of the files. And it was a huge efficiency change for them. So I've dealt with artificial intelligence in this computer vision space, but have an understanding of it in a lot of different ways. And one thing that you you touched on that really needs to be reflected on is really there's no, everything that is written in code is a decision made by a human being. And it's philosophical in yeah, nature. It has to be by, by, by definition. Right. And their philosophies, if guided by Catholic principles, are going to be different than if not. And you're absolutely correct, Deacon, that the choices that are made, whether what they include and what they don't, are it's night and day, you know, of faith or not. And it is something to be concerned about that someone could do something on accident while they're trying to solve something else. And, you know, we're not, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but there are risks with that um, to have completely unrestrained development. Mm. And we see, you know, it's, it's really a problem that we see in Silicon Valley that there's billions and billions of dollars, trillions in these market caps of these companies, and they're just doing whatever. You know, in a lot of ways, particularly in artificial intelligence, the there's no there's no oversight by any any governing body at all. I think it's also really interesting um, to think about the way that those industries are set up and work in the sense that, um, you know, I'll have a lot of young people come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about a career in whatever, you know, working for one of the big social platforms or getting into programming or AI or whatever it is. And where you would tell somebody who was moving into more of a durable trade, right, or something that's like a generational thing, a, a skill that's stood the test of time, you might say, be a good apprentice, learn from the person who knows what they're doing, listen well, like you kind of focus on some of those skills of learning, uh, apprenticeship, et cetera, right? A mentor-mentee kind of dynamic. But when I think about young people who come to me and say like, hey, what should I think about when I'm going into these fields? It's almost like the advice I give them is, the ground that you're stepping on, A, is not solid in the sense that it's constantly iterating and changing, and B, don't take it for granted that that is the way that something should be, right? So my orientation to young people moving into these industries is like question everything, because a lot of the things that you just described might already be baked into the cake. Do you see what I'm saying? And like my job in that field can't assume or presuppose everything that came before me is just right on. Like it's really great. You know what I mean? Because it may not be. Yeah, certainly in terms of the morality of these products, that there's addictive products, there's products with censorship, there's all these morality issues that you come to the job and you must encounter. But it's a hard career. I mean, it it is a crazy hard career when you train, you work really hard, and then within some single digit amount of years, your skill set can be totally irrelevant or not useful. It's insane yeah. how quickly that can happen in software technology. Do you run into, do you work with a lot of people who are um, in that world who are you know, secular, not of any belief, not of any kind of background? I'm assuming you do. That would be the vast majority. The vast majority, right? That's the vast majority. And when people find out maybe a little bit about your journey, everybody Googles everybody, right? So if I Google you, I'm going to see that paper. I'm going to, you know, come across that podcast. I'm going to do whatever. <laughs> um, what, do they, what do they say? You know, it's something that belief in God is something so difficult to encounter intellectually. It's something so unfamiliar that they, it is almost, they almost are speechless, it's not something, I think one thing as, as people of faith or Catholics that we um, lose sight of is I, I personally believe that in my generation, I'm, I'm in my early 30s, most of them have no clue what any of it is. They don't know the difference between the Catholic Church and Protestantism. 
they have they have lost their ability to critique faith or critique religion completely. Is that based on just a, a lacking kind of frame set to look at these things? Like you're not getting some of the more classic kind of background into yeah. philosophy and whatever else? Yeah, they're utterly unformed. They might have gone to Stanford. They may have gone to Harvard. They go to all these schools, competitive universities, and they actually do not understand even how to approach the idea. That That is more common. Interesting. That they're unable to critique it in any way. And it, some people might have a more of a visceral kind of like, oh, you know, these values are against ours. But most of the time, it, it is it's basically they're speechless. I had Bishop Andrew Cousins on the show last week. Um, he's the guy who's leading the three-year Eucharistic revival, the National Eucharistic Revival for the USCCB. And he talked about this sort of loss of sacramental imagination, but he identified as this kind of like pitting against you know, sacramental realities, philosophical realities with this kind of like hardened scientism mm -hmm. that's sort of pervasive now. And I think it may be more pervasive in the sectors that you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. But I wouldn't feel, I would feel pretty confident that you could get in a, in a civilized manner like this, you could have a, a 20 minute conversation with someone and you could exhaust their entire um, argument set against going to religion, going to church and against religion, and they would actually be left speechless, basically. Mm. It, it is extremely shallow, their understanding of, uh, as we understand, reality. It's actually an extremely shallow understanding of it, but it is never, it never encounters anything except another shallow person, basically, mm. sadly. Mm. And so it is a lot of groupthink, and it's a lot of people who, and I was there, you're at the parties, you're raising a lot of money, you're spending a lot of money. No one's, it, it is Cinderella at the ball, basically. And no one realizes that on the judgment day, the clock will strike midnight and we will be found out on that day. But if you can just postpone that, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die, mm. you know? Yeah. And I think the only thing I've ever seen short circuit that is a brush with death in my, in my experience. Or, as my experience, is something can happen which will radically change the worldview around you. And you can choose to answer the questions in a different way. That like is what, what happened COVID? to me. COVID? COVID. And for me, it was the election of President Donald Trump. Yeah, I know that that's a big part of your story. I mean, and it's an interesting response to that, right? Because what you, a lot of people were horrified. Yeah. A lot of people were elated. A lot of people, you know, had a, a variety of different emotions. The set that you and I work in, you're on the technology side, I'm on the media side, but it's the same food group. Right. I mean, believe me, <laughs> what we're talking about is the same people. It was an absolute atomic nuclear detonation of the highest level of magnitude. Yeah. I remember in the startup that I was in 2016, there was an all hands that got called mm. to basically walk people back into some level of normalcy where they could even type out an email. Mm. I mean, it was crippling to people. And so I think a lot of, a lot of, this was a big shockwave for you. It was, I mean, I want to hear it, but to come out the other end by, Hey, there's Judeo Christian values at play is a real interesting take. Yeah. It, part of it is definitely the upbringing I had in a quite a small town in Florida. So I was not, I was exposed to like the definitive Trump supporter growing up. I was exposed to people who were very who were aligned with that political philosophy my entire life. So it was not as foreign to me as I think a lot of people in in Silicon Valley grow up in metropolitan areas and then they go to an elite school and then they go to San Francisco and they've never actually encountered an oppositional or divergent point of view. Mm. That wasn't the case for me. But yes, it, it was the same thing. Like we had people in in the companies that I were working on and consulting in who just didn't come to work the next day. They just couldn't do it. And I was I distinctly remember I was out with friends that day and it was just like it was a shadow which was cast mm. upon like the whole city. It was crazy. And right, it, people could not make sense of it. And that's where I was too. And so we'll talk about that. What was it about it that you couldn't make sense of the response or the, the, the sort of the, 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 the action or the reaction? It was or the, both. 
it was the action. Yeah. The, re- the reaction was something that really wasn't that interesting to me. It seemed overly emotional. It just didn't make sense. But the action, which was I and many, many people around me were convinced that this outcome in the election not only was impossible, but it was laughable that this was even happening. It, it was something so completely unrealistic that this person was running for political office, but that he won was, it was not possible. That's, that's what the, the issue was. And people like you and I who would look at this and say, okay, let's look at the strategy. Let's look at the process. Let's look at the obstacles. And if you were to assess that campaign on day one, you'd be like, you have literally no shot. Yeah. Like literally none. Because you have no experience, the apparatus on either side is against you, the media is against you, you've said incendiary things. Like, I mean, it it defied every point of logic, and, and that's a big part of the worldview of folks that are there, right? Yeah, that's that's a great point. It does defy logic. It defies logic that someone who's been divorced four times will represent evangelical conservative Christians like... A person who is basically completely bankrupt a few, you know, two decades ago becomes the most powerful person in the world. It just, it is beyond logic. Mm -hmm. It's true. But it just caused me to ask this question, what else am I missing? Mm. I mean, it's really, it was that simple. I just, I, there was two ways to take it. One was the way where you called into sick, you called into work sick, you didn't show up and it affected you in this visceral way that you couldn't get over. I wasn't going to choose that. And the other way was to study this and try to understand what happened. Like what just happened in this world that I missed something that millions of people did. Not a few, but millions. What was the first thing that you found in that sort of inquiry process? Like what was the first thing that was like, what? Surprising. What was surprising is when I I would, so I created a blog actually, and I would interview people who voted for President Trump. And I would just ask them questions, basically, why did you vote for him? And what was the most surprising is that they had a good reason. It wasn't that they were, um, I I had a caricature of a Christian person. I mean, it's true. And I actually grew up in Florida near this where they would burn Harry Potter books hmm. and they would have all this stuff against witchcraft. And, you know, that is actually something that I encountered. But when I spoke to people and they had very clear and coherent reasons, that was, the, that was a shock that they were actually thinking about what they did and arrived hmm. at this, this conclusion and just kept pulling at this string, kept pulling at this string. Why do you think this way? You know, what is all of this? And then that phrase would keep coming up, you know, values, morality, and then eventually Judeo-Christian values. Mm. And, you know, for the record, you were approaching this from not having had a Judeo-Christian formation, right? Which I don't know is clear to the audience at this point, but you were coming from a Hindu background. That's correct. My family is from India, and I grew up in this town in Florida, but it was extremely Hindu background. And they inculcated those values and that religion into me. I was the president of the Hindu Students Association at the school that I went to, my college, Emory University. It was an extremely important part of my upbringing, and it was an extremely important part of my identity and world philosophy. Mm. And, you know, I fell away from that as I started to make more money in San Francisco and was surrounded by other people who were, you know, doing all this stuff. I became extremely hedonistic in my life. And at that point when... In, in November 2016, on, the, on that day, I was living a very hedonistic life, you know, by that point. And I came at it from that worldview. And, and I tell people after I joined the church, you, you can't imagine the difference. Like, I didn't know what a sin was. I didn't know what original sin was. I didn't know what, you know, what a creation is. I didn't... Really, it boils down to, I did not know what truth is. Mm. I could not know mm. because I didn't understand Christianity, which is when we realize what it is, it, is the, it explains the most fundamental aspects of humanity and the most fundamental aspects of the universe. I didn't know any of it. And so I would come to it really 
having to learn the most basic parts of reality. And after you make this, you start this sort of inquiry process, you have these interviews, by the way, it would have been a hell of a podcast too. Um, but you're, you're talking to these folks and you're, and you're kind of getting this, which again is very, you know, kind of MVP of you, you know, kind of like, let's, <laughs> let's create the prototype. Let's get some feedback. Right. Let's start putting things into categories. But when you, when you get this feedback and it's like this, this kind of drumbeat of values and, and whatever, what happens after that? Do you start, um, like looking into, well, what is this Jesus thing or, or like, how, what is that process? Yeah. Basically I was an atheist at that point. Sam Harris, atheist, just staunch. So avowed, you said God is not real, even as a Hindu. Yeah. So there's two points to that. I said, God is not real, which Hinduism is a pure relativistic approach. So you can actually be an atheist and be Hindu. That is possible. But I would have disavowed even Hinduism. I would have said, I'm completely atheist. There is no God. And everything that the reason that humanity invented God is because they needed an explanation for the world. And as we've become more intelligent, we don't need that explanation anymore. Therefore, we don't need God anymore. That's, that's where I was. Got it. And I... Um, Basically, I just would read the political side more because I didn't want anything to do with the religious side. And the more I looked at the political side, I was like, this is boring. This is dumb. You know, I'm reading all of these conservative news outlets, these kind of this other perspective news outlets. And I was like, I get it. You know, market economics as, as someone who's interested in business, that made sense to me. But the one thing that was boring, truth be told, was that there's trillions of pieces of content that are created every day and the world moves like a millimeter. You know, what happens in Congress is microscopic. What happens in this world is just nothing. So people are just creating these tweets and this everything about nothing happening. And I was like, this is leading me nowhere. And I have to take an additional step. And the only other route to go was this question, Judeo-Christian values. What is it? What does Christianity have to say for itself? basically. And I started with testimonies of conversion, probably because that's what was, that's the most copious content that I could find online. Mm. And from the very first video I found, it was the, the, the main uh, older gentleman on Duck Dynasty. Okay. Sure. Yeah. 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 Don't and, know his name, but I know, I can see his face. Yeah. I don't remember his name either. And he told a testimony of how he gave his life to Christianity. And he explained all that he suffered before and then all he experienced after. And everything he talked about suffering was exactly what I dealt with. An inability to refuse a drink of alcohol, to go to a party, to really be a slave of temptation. And as soon as I saw someone say it that way and say that somehow they got out of it, I was I was completely hooked because really? I I had ruined my life so many times through partying and I was just going nowhere and I knew that you know I found the faith through this intellectual kind of curiosity but the truth is it it came from listlessness in a personal way you know by the I, way just as a side note i happen to love the notion that it was duck dynasty and not like saint thomas aquinas or like you know I'm, well which i'm sure now was play, playing a role in, in your thinking or whatever saint francis de sales or polycarp or something crazy <laughs> like that but it was duck dynasty so it was more of an appeal to the impact to the human dimension and the suffering aspect of it that called to you initially oh yeah it was just I need to get out of this. I need to get out of not going anywhere. Did you recognize, though, when you were living that kind of atheist, hedonistic side before this? So, like, before Trump, was there a sense in you in the kind of maybe banality kind of, was it sort of exhausting? Like, were there other signals that, like, this is just not it? No. And I think the book of Isaiah says it clearly. For he has shut their eyes they cannot see and shut their minds that they cannot understand. I don't think there was any thought in my mind but looking back i see it mm. like i was going nowhere i had started so many companies that failed 
I had so many relationships that failed. Ever, I mean, literally, nothing meaningful was happening good. Nothing. Mm. And so then you find yourself seeking something that you can attach yourself to, right? And, and some people attach themselves to politics, which could have happened oh, to yeah. me, right? Oh, yeah. And thanks be to God, it didn't. Because through his grace, I just asked that, that little additional question. I think right now the to- it would be a toss-up between politics and sports about right. what is the biggest religion right now. But exactly. it, there is. There's like a whole, you know, whole structure, uh, ecosystem of thinking right. related to politics as like the center of somebody's universe. Right, exactly. And it, and it has these human mirrors of ritual and all this stuff. But thanks be to God that I just asked that additional question a little bit more. You know, the political stuff wasn't enough. The philosophy wasn't enough. Just a little bit more. And then that's how I was first exposed to a different way of thinking. And that was just, that was just one uh, person, that testimony. But from there, I just kept reading about Christianity. I mean, just every day. I would learn more and more about what Christianity had to say for itself. And it turns out it's not a bunch of people in North Florida burning Harry Potter books. Or a guy in the sky with a white beard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it turns out it's none of those things. And I was shocked. I mean, to be honest, I was shocked. And I just kept doing little bits and pieces here. And eventually I was like, okay, I want to be a Christian. I want to join a church. And But wait a minute, though. Hang on. So eventually you say, I want to be a Christian. Like there's like a big part between you're kind of doing this due diligence and you're watching Duck Dynasty. Phil, I think, is the guy's name, but I don't know his last name still. But you're watching that um, and then you decide you want to give your life to Jesus Christ. Like let's let's kind of dive in a little bit in between those two spots. You know, I would say it wasn't so much that I wanted to give my life to our Lord. But it was that I was completely convinced that the story was true. Okay. So at that point, is it fair to say that you were, because I don't know as much about Hinduism. I know Buddhism is very much a, almost in a way you can think about it as an operating system for life, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, this is the Eightfold Path and we do X, Y, Z. Was there some part of that in the kind of Christian understanding where it's like, this is a better system, in other words, without this personal relationship with Jesus, which maybe even the book burners would say you need to have, I don't know, depends on which kind of book burners you're talking about, but was it, was it at some point like, this is just, there's been this explosion in the culture, I don't get it, I'm looking at this, this seems like the right system, let me go to that. Was there any part of it that was that? I think that's exactly it, yeah. And so Buddhism and Hinduism are both, they're both systems of dharma. Dharma is the word that describes that that um, chain of religions, that group. And that system of dharma for Buddhism or Hinduism is, it's okay. It's actually not bad, but it is not the fullness of the truth. And I think what you said is exactly right. I identified that the worldview and system of Christianity worked, and it made sense, and it was coherent, and it appeared to me like the fruits of it made way more sense than anything I had. So it was very attractive in that way. But it was more about the truth. I I don't think that... It it actually took me quite a long time to understand that there is a person of God who is interested in us personally. That that came way after I was baptized. Mm. I mean, that didn't even come until much later. Mm -hmm. But what, what I was sure about is that... And so just to give you an idea of how skeptical I was, when I was an atheist, I did not believe that there was a man named Jesus Christ who lived on this earth. That's how skeptical I was. And so I came basically the full 180 from there to say, definitely this person lived. Definitely this person had a ministry. Definitely he was crucified. And definitely three days later, he, he, something happened, which was radically transformative to... Um, you know, all the people who experienced it. And, you know, it's funny, I, where my family is from in India is a, is a city called Chennai and Madras. And that's the place that St. Thomas the Apostle was martyred. And during that time, I found it, I found it fascinating. I had been there visiting family, you know, you just see that place. And I thought I couldn't, 
I could never forfeit my belief in the truth of Christianity, reflecting on that building being there, that church, and that site being there. Because why in the world would this Jewish person from Israel come all the way to that random corner in India and be martyred there if he didn't actually experience something, you know? And I've, I've seen that place. I mean, it's sometimes like the, the most elegant apologetic is like just the simplest one, right? Which is like, look, either these people were completely deluded, corrupt and evil to a level never seen before by man that they wove this whole thing together or they were convicted and they were sent by that conviction to all corners of the world with this message that they knew was going to be hell on earth to deliver especially in cultures where they didn't even have the starting point of Judaism. Right. I mean, at least with the Jews, you could say, hey, listen, we've been waiting for the Messiah. This is him. All right. So like, it's kind of like soften the earth a little bit, but in a, in a background of, uh, you know, in that case, Hinduism, which is more ancient than Christianity and which led to Buddhism, you don't have that frame, right. right? You can't even have that conversation. So like, why the heck were these guys here? And then why were they lauded after the fact? Right. And why are they these... You know, it, it's it, it's such a simple kind of apologetic in a way, but it, it makes all the sense in the world. Yes, exactly. And that, that was something that was very impactful on me, which is even just the simplest, which is why is Christianity even here? Mm. I mean, it really doesn't make any sense why this idea could even exist for this long if there wasn't truth in it, you know? And But that's only part of the story because I wanted to join a church and I searched all these churches online you know, what was that search like? Was it just geographic? Like you're like, what's around me? What's around me in San Francisco? So at, at that point, there is no, uh, you, you're not kind of um, distinguishing the different. Okay. Well, I am distinguishing it, and I didn't like the Catholic version because. Oh, got it. Okay. They had a lot to say about um, you know certain ways I was living my life. Got it. Okay. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not want anything to do with that. So it was almost like I hope it's anything but this. Right. And so, find me the one that aligns with what I'm doing the best. Exactly. Exactly. Find me the one that I don't have to change. And so then, but then I start looking up things like baptism because I want to be baptized. And really when you, when you start looking at things like sacraments or the, or what baptism is, you won't find anything but Catholic resources. And again, I push it away. I, I kind of liked what they were saying, kind of like the explanations, but I kind of pushed it away because I was fearful of it. But what drew me in to the Catholic faith was, was more than just the coherency. It was when I saw the apologists explain what they believed, they were completely sure. And more than anything, what I lacked through all the darkness and challenge that I had in my life, I had no certainty about anything. And when I could see people who were utterly convicted with no doubt, I, I was drawn to it in a way that was so much more than just a curiosity. And then I started to read about the Catholic faith, and then I became convicted in the same way that they were, because you see that it is the coherent explanation of everything. And so then I decided to go to a Catholic church and join and I spoke to, I, I emailed them and they said, oh, you can do the RCIA program. And I went and I met with the RCIA director. And that person was the first Catholic person I'd ever met as an adult. What? Yeah. The whole thing was online. Oh, got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 All the research and everything that I learned was only from online resources. Why in particular did you think it was important to be baptized? Because I, th I think this was something that was very important given to me. Um, through my Hindu background, I, I understood that ritual is very important. It's not actually a, um, it's not something that is incidental. It's actually extremely important that you have a way to pass on your tradition beyond words because there's no way it will last otherwise. And I knew that the, there, was a, there was an extremely important significance to being baptized. Mm. And that kind of ritual uh, washing or cleansing, you know, in a Hindu context, there's the very famous Ganges kind of like, you know, ritual 
and perhaps many others. From a Jewish perspective, there's the ceremonial or ritual cleansing in the kind of pools and you know, even in the times of, in the times of Jesus, the pool of Siloam and all this other stuff, this idea of cleansing, of course, on a physical, natural level, but that it may point to something else and may have other, you know, kind of trappings. It may, it reminds me of, um, you know, the, what the Catholic church teaches in that anything that is true in another faith to the extent that it is true is essentially Catholic, right? It, it is basically the truth. It's And you said it right by, you know, it wasn't the fullness, maybe, yeah. what you were experiencing um, before. But it's miraculous to me to look at the way that God communicates to his children across the world in all these different cultures. It's like drawing us near by some of these things that are relevant, resonate culturally, whatever, but that draw us into the kind of fullness of that of that experience. Yeah, I think that there's there's two sides of it. It is amazing, certainly, that God draws humanity towards him in all these different circumstances through what is true. But I think it is also clear that when you see the fullness of it and what he has given to us through the church, you see that the chasm between— Oh, for sure. It is, it is for insurmountable. Sure. For sure. It's almost like if, uh, you know— to use a terrible example, it's like a bank robber who uh, on his way out says, have a nice day. Well, the have a nice day was good, but you know, everything else is like not, not okay. Yeah, no. So I'm not trying to equate it, um, equate it that way. So you have this kind of um, maybe more antagonistic notion to Catholicism um, initially because of the way that it kind of contravened your, your way that you were living. Mm -hmm. Right which in itself is fascinating to me, but it's true. It is very much true. And there's something that happens though, at some point when you decide, despite that, this is interesting. I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to meet with the first Catholic ever and have that conversation. What changed? I went through a change in my personal life Mm. and I lived with, um, a person I was in a relationship with that t- at that time. And I shared with her this part of this journey and she was not interested. And basically, oh, wow. you know, relationship ended and I is they, so her parents took like all the furniture except this mattress that, and I remember distinctly waking up one morning and everything was completely in shambles, total apartment mess. And I said, this is the worst day of my life. Mm. And I said, on God's worst day, which was the crucifixion, on his worst day, he chose me. And on this, my worst day, I'll choose him. Wow. And I, I basically said at that time, I've ruined my life way too many times. I understand everyone has told me that I was gifted. I had talents from when I was in middle school. And I've done nothing. And I just knew that it ends now mm. with this. How, how is your family responding to this journey to the extent that they're aware of it? They're pretty aware. Um, they've become more aware as I've joined the church and tried to share more quite poorly. Um, I would say uh, they're not the identity that, that they have as Hindus is not compatible with any other faith and they're not interested in this at all. So it seems to them more like a resignation of what makes you, you, and then by extension, what makes them, them. Yes. And also it is a repudiation of their parenting, basically Mm. that what they did was not good enough and that I had to seek something else because they, they know that they know, first of all, that I was in a lot of pain and they know now that, thanks be to God, all because of God, I've, ex- I've had extreme success. And they look at that and they think, oh, he actually, the success came because of our faith and our beliefs in Hinduism and our culture. But he's incorrectly attributing it to Christianity. And he's therefore going down a bad, bad path and he's m- misunderstanding what we did. Mm, that's tough. Yeah. And not uncommon. I think a lot of people, parents, um, by the way, that also happens in reverse. Since you're being vulnerable and sharing, I'll do the same. But, you know, I've got five kids, one in heaven, four here on earth. 
And not all of them are followers of the faith. Not all of them have decided to live the, you know, the tradition, the customs, the, the truth of what we've shared. Part of that, you know, as a parent, you kind of look at it and go, maybe there was an imperfection in how I, you know, how can you screw up the truth? Right. It's like, <laughs> so it's, it's maybe tougher from a Catholic perspective, but, um, but that has caused a tremendous amount of pain. So even though it's the sort of opposite end of the spectrum, I can identify with how, how, the, how that might feel for them, you know, to have that sense of like, cause there's maybe some anger, but there's also a lot of self-reflection and going like, where did I screw this thing up right. along the way? Right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly, that's exactly what they think. Where, where did we go wrong? Mm. Now it's, it's strange because like I said, from any metric that they have, the fruits of what my life is now is quite good. But there's something that people, they just encounter the name Jesus or they encounter the word conversion, which I use. I did convert. I changed, mm. thanks be to God. And they, you know, that, that stuff is very difficult to encounter. Are you familiar with the uh, philosopher Peter Kraft? Yeah, he's, he's a current day um, He's a current what? He's a contemporary. Yeah, he's a contemporary guy. Yeah, yeah. I've actually met him. And it was like a, I was total fanboy experience for me. But he wrote a book called Jesus Shock. Mm. You, ever, you ever come across this book? No. You should read it, but okay. uh, everybody should read it. I'll put it in the show notes too. But it may be in my top four books ever of all time. And you can imagine what's in that list, right? And this book is so compelling but the starting point of it he has this very clever way of writing where he speaks there's a um, literary mech a device called apostrophe mm. where it, like in theater it would be or in a movie it would be where the actor turns to the camera and talks to the audience mm. he uses that literary vehicle a lot where he addresses the reader like okay. you reading this book you you know that's like it's a weird thing so it's arresting but in the very beginning of that book he talks about the impact of the word of the name Jesus mm. in particular in settings that are not, that are foreign to that kind of Judeo-Christian background. Right. And the power that it has yeah. now, it's kind of like a bomb going off and I forget exactly how he describes it, but he says at one point, it's like, if you know, try it, you know, again, addressing the reader, try it, Mr. <laughs> reader at the next cocktail party, <laughs> say, you know, I, I, I believe in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and watch how that name draws all the energy out of the room. He, I think he says it hits like a thud and like this deafening silence that can happen afterwards, right? Which from a Christian perspective, you know, we can wrap all kinds of supernatural reasons around that because that wor the word, the power of his name, literally, but in a more conventional kind of way, societal, secular, etc., it is something that in those circles, people just often can't contend with. It's like this, it's a total showstopper. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're a program, you're a software guy. You know what a showstopper is, right? Like a bug that just stops the development process, right? That's kind of what it does. It short circuits everything that's happening at that moment. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. You, you see it used in movies. You'll see it used by people in a derogatory way, you know, the name of God. And it doesn't have that effect. It's, it's an expression that we overlook. But when you say it and you mean it, it is totally different. Mm. You know, my buddy, um, I have a Protestant evangelical Protestant buddy known for many, many years and somebody who had a deep impact in my life in ways that he doesn't know. One of them is that when I was going through a particularly difficult time in the corporate world and had crazy insomnia and depression, and anxiety, I was kind of like at your hedonism, hedonism point. Okay. At one point, he didn't know we had any shared faith experience, and I really wasn't anywhere really in my faith. But I'm kind of recounting to him. It's like, hey, man, I haven't slept in like a week, and mm. I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out, freaking out. <laughs> and he says, he on this phone call, it was a phone call, and I was, I was walking to lunch somewhere, and he says, Do, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a believer. I believe, I'm a Christian, and I believe in the power of intercessory prayer. Do you mind if I pray over you? And that thing hit me like a friggin' truck Whoa. when he said that. You know what I mean? And he did it. And it absolutely blew me away. This sort of witness, right? This sense of like, I'm going to break out of this sort of shell. Yeah. This break out of this moment 
and bring something else, you know, greater to, to, to this situation. And, and that always stuck with me. Um, it was a very powerful moment. I forget how I was going to tie that back to what you said, but I think it had something to do with, um, you know, with the name of Jesus, but it was a very powerful way to kind of break out of that. Just kind of turning, flipping gears a little bit on, you know, your kind of work now, entrepreneurial innovation, et cetera, and maybe in moments of kind of mixed company, do you, or how do you bring the faith into your experiences? And and does it differ depending on the company that you're with? Uh, first of all, I would say I'm so seldom in mixed company now. You mm-hmm. know, I, I find that the, the Catholic faith and going to church is by far the most important part of who I am. And therefore, really, it's important for me, it's desirable for me to spend time pe- with people who share that. And I think that as I've kind of gone forward with looking at what I'm doing in business, whatever, really, I find myself surrounded by Catholics. But even when I don't, um, I still say, thank God. I still, you know, bring these things up. I went on a silent retreat. So great blessing. I, we sold our company last year. So now I work for this company that bought us. And I went on a silent retreat, Catholic retreat. And I told everyone in that team, you know, this is where I'm going. I sent them the website very, very clear and upfront. It's kind of the same thing. I realize it from the other side. When you're in darkness, the worst thing somebody can do is withhold the truth from you. And I, I just, I know so many people in San Francisco and in, in these jobs, like they're miserable people who don't know anything about God and whatever we do to alleviate it is good. And that name, Jesus Christ, is a great way. And sharing what I'm doing, telling them I go to church, and telling them when you message me on Sunday, I don't respond. Like, that stuff is very important. Yeah, for sure. Well, it makes people question, like, yeah. just like you did with Trump. It's like, well, what's going on here? Right. Why is this happening? Um, and and that can definitely be the seeds that we plant. It, it, is, a, it is a balance, right? Because at least it is for me, this notion of... Um, what responsibility do we have to be the leaven in the world? Scripture is pretty clear about that, right? That we have to be the leaven in the dough. Well, if we're leaven, then what's the dough, right? The dough is the guy in the cubicle next to you, the gal in the cubicle next to you who may not have that, um, may have that sort of more obscured way of looking out at the world. Um, your, your quote from Isaiah, I think earlier about, what was it? Was it Isaiah? Yes, Isaiah, I think chapter 52. Um but he has shut their eyes he and they cannot their see, and right. shut their minds that they cannot understand. Which the catechism in its teaching regards as um, the dulling of the intellect and the will as, as a result of, you know, living that kind of lifestyle. And I, always, I was always struck by that language because what it, what it suggests is an inability to literally see it. It might be right in front of you, right. but you're still like, I don't know. So those things, those things break through. Don't text me on Sunday. What? Like, you know, I'm going to a retreat. I remember when I left Disney, it was my last week there after being there for six years. And everybody's like, well, you're going to, you don't start your new gig for like a month or whatever it was. So you're going to just, you know, relax. And I I said, the very first thing that I'm going to do, my brother was living in community in a Benedictine monastery. I was like, the very first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go on on silent retreat. And they're like, what's that? (laughs) Right. And I was like, well, it's where you don't talk. Um, for a period of multiple days and you use that time to pray and be introspective and contemplate. And they're like, I mean, it was, you could see the, the, the pistons misfiring, you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, and then in some cases I did the same thing, sent the website or whatever it was. But, um, but those things I, I've heard in years now following from a number of people stuck out. Yeah. Those things stuck out, right? That kind of seed planting. Um, even if you don't mean it intentionally, like I'm not trying to sow a seed. I'm just telling you what I'm doing on Sunday, but that's how God breaks through. That's how God can break through. And he's always desiring to break through to everybody. Yeah. I think I am a little bit more, um, explicit. I am trying to draw you to the faith, Mm -hmm. you know, and I am trying to, um, get everyone on this planet to see what I saw because I, I think I experienced the depths of you know, despair. And I, I see on so many people's faces, they, they don't understand God loves them. 
and it's a culprit for so much unhappiness in their life. I've I've had many people comment, and maybe you've had the same, where they where they've told me it's like, oh man, you just you you kind of seem unflappable. You kind of, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm like. I'm, you know, I, I feel like the internal dialogue doesn't reflect that exterior um, perception, but to me, it's kind of the difference between um, happiness and joy or right. happiness and peace, right? It's this, you know, f- this, this sense of religion isn't this kind of bomb to make all the bad stuff go away, but it does equip you naturally and supernaturally with what you need to contend with any sling and arrow. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's basically the size of it. Right, exactly. And I, and I think... Unfortunately, some people will respond to that poorly. I think that is actually what happens with my family. Mm. They see the sense of security and firmness that I have in, in the Catholic Church, and that's hard because that's something that there is no way to achieve that without the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist mm. and going to our church. Mm. There's no way. Well, I have, uh, if, you don't, if you don't know him already, are you familiar with uh, St. Lawrence, new canonized, yeah. was just canonized in May, St. Lawrence, what's his last name? First lay person from India canonized in 2,000 years. Yeah, he was Lawrence, a martyr. He was a martyr, yeah. Lawrence was not his given name, obviously, but that's what they call him now. But um, that would be a pretty cool intercessor. Yeah. If you haven't thought about that one already, maybe you have. Right. But for, the, for, you know, for, for your family and all that stuff, yeah. I'll pray to him. I'll ask him. Thank you. Help us out. Um, if people want to follow what you're doing, you know, kind of like figure out more about you, what you're up to, that kind of stuff. What do they do? Yeah, it's funny. We, we didn't talk about that at all. Tell me. Um, so like I mentioned, extreme blessing being able to sell Pantenix last year. And what I've done in the last year is start a new company with a co-founder of mine. And that's called Fide Email. Great name. <laughs> and what we're doing is providing... For those who don't know, though, what does Fide mean? Because there's a lot of people who are not Catholic listening to this show. It means, it means faith, right? Mm-hmm. It's the Latin word for faith. And we are providing one of the first, if not the first, consumer technology alternative for Catholics, starting with email. And what that means is there are corporations which we feel beholden to to do business with that have values which are contrary to ours. And we believe that it is extremely important for Catholics to stick together in the new internet economy just as much as they did in the old economy. So if you think maybe 100 years ago, people might choose to shop at a Catholic bakery, this is no different. It's basically choosing to spend your dollars with a Catholic company that uh, we give to Catholic causes. We, we work with Catholic uh, contractors. We, we keep that money in the, in the ecosystem as well. And you can choose to you know, do your business with us. And it's very similar to you know, people buy local, people buy American. It's a very similar concept that you have a value judgment in what you buy. And this is a company, Fide, that you can choose to buy aligned with your Catholic values. And you can find out more about what we're doing at www.fidei.email. That's right. You don't have to do .com. It's .email. And that will take you to the site. Awesome. We'll include all that information too um, in the show notes. And the bakery, uh, the bakery metaphor is actually a pretty good one, right? In the sense that you would support a Catholic bakery or whatever, tailor not only ones that are making cupcakes shaped like St. Teresa of Avila, right? Just like any bakery. Exactly. But we have this sort of chip in our head that's like, oh, this is a Catholic business because they're doing Catholic explicitly things. But we need a lot more of just supporting Catholic entrepreneurs, um, leaders, owners, et cetera, that are just leading this sort of Catholic revival in the world, especially in this in this sector, especially given its influence in the world. That's exactly right, Deacon. It's it's not about always doing a product that is some kind of gimmick or Catholic iteration. It's just about competing normally, and but still seeing that the people involved are the people you want to align yourself with. Amen to that. 
Well, what a privilege to have you on the show, brother. Wow, thank you very much for having me. Really happy that you're out there, that you're doing what you're doing. Be praying for you a lot, praying for the uh, continued prosperity of all your work, and that it's infectious, and that you run into a lot of people, Catholic and non, that kind of, you know, take a little bit from your playbook and go, hmm, there's something happening here, and I want to get involved. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thank really you, Deacon. Yeah, I mean, the Lord completely changed my life. Thanks be to God. Amen. Me too. And if you're listening to this show, my friends, that means it, it's time to subscribe. Please share this episode with somebody that you know and love. Maybe somebody who's thinking about starting up their own thing or getting ready to start that new job. Or maybe somebody who's already in a very senior position who's never heard the perspective that Kailash just shared. Please give that show an opportunity to get into their ears, into their hearts, into their minds. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-USA.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.